0: I heard this following story a number of years ago, and it's about um, mother and her child who are shopping in a supermarket together, and the child is pretty young. We're talking like, you know, baby infant, and in that uh, front part of the cart, and so facing her mother, and shall we say, what's a nice way to put this? The child is starting to get a little fussy crankiness is starting and the mother responds calmly Katie it's okay I know we all get frustrated sometime Katie it's all right this isn't gonna last too much longer it's okay it's okay Katie and they continue shopping and we've moved way past fussiness now the tears are starting to roll and the squalls are starting to get louder. Mom, Katie, I know, I know you're struggling. I know that things are difficult right now. I know that things are tough. I know you're not feeling well. Katie, it's okay. It's okay. This won't be too much longer. And then they get to have the checkout line and we've moved beyond tears now. Full DEFCON 5 tantrum. <laughs> Mom, Katie, I know, we're almost done, we're almost there, doing so well, doing so well, we're almost finished, very calm. They pay for their groceries, found their way out the door, DEFCON 5 is still engaged, and a man who's been in the supermarket with them taps Mom on the shoulder and says, you know, I've been shopping all the time that you've been shopping. And I want to tell you how inspiring it is to see you be so calm, to see you be so kind to Katie. And the woman looks flummoxed for a while. She says, the baby's not Katie. I'm Katie. (laughs) I'm going to think that's a totally true story, not apocryphal. So this is a kind of story about someone kind of handling their stuff in a really stressful situation. I'm not a parent. Many of you are. Some of you have kids this age. This is not something you have to go far to imagine being in this kind of scenario. The message for today in this series, Stories with Soul, that is inspired by the C.S. Lewis comment that there is no story worth hearing at eight, that we also shouldn't hear at 80 about kids' literature that can continue to inspire, is all about someone or a being, a creature, that is able to handle their stuff in a difficult circumstance. It is from what I like to call the lesser Seuss canon. Little Louis, excuse me. I'm ahead of myself. King Louis cats. Some of you might know this. Some of you might remember it. It was in the collection I Can Lick Thirty Tigers Today, along as I Thunk a Glunk. It's not Cat in a Hat. It's not Green Eggs and Ham. It's not the Lorax, but it's still really wonderful if you'd show that first slide. So that's King Louis. He is king of Katzenstein. King Louis was a proud cat, mighty proud of his royal tail. He washed it every morning in a 10-gallon golden pail. But a problem comes about. See, all that time spent washing the royal tail and making sure it is clean and pristine as can be. But the problem is it's a tail. And then after it's done being washed and beautified, it drags on the ground. King Louis Katz is not at all okay with this. So, King Louis goes and he gets someone else in the kingdom, Pruey Katz, to go around all day long holding the royal tail so the royal tail never drags upon the ground. And King Louis Katz is very, very happy because this is fitting right for a royal tail. It never should get dirty. But the problem is. Is that Pruey Cat then thinks, and this isn't the official record, this is my interpretation of what Dr. Seuss was trying to say. Pruey Cat says, what kind of schmuck am I? (laughs) Look at my tail dragging on the ground in back of me. This is intolerable. And so Pruey Cats gets Stewie Cats to walk around in back of Pruey Cats all day long holding his tail. And you see where this is going. Pruey Cats is now not happy. So Pruey Cats gets Dewey Cats to hold his tail all the day long until it gets down all the way to the end of the line. Till little Zooey Katzenbein, the last cat in all of Katzenstein, and guess what? There's no one to carry his tail around for him, and this is not cool. And this is what happens. His tail would never be held up, and poor old Zooey knew it, because holding up a cat's tail takes another cat to do it. Poor Zooey got so awfully mad, so mad he could have spit, but he did a far, far braver thing. He simply said, I quit. I will not, shall not drag this stupid thing around. I will not, shall not keep this stupid thing from dragging on the ground. And what happens is this great chain reaction. When Zooey throws down that tail, that cat throws down the next tail, and the next tail, and all the way up to King Louis cats. And everyone's tail is dragging on the ground now. And this is where the amazing thing happens. As Dr. Seuss, as Theodore Geisel says, they all become more democratic Each one holds their own up. It leads to greater equality. Everyone taking responsibility for themselves. Moving away from the place where it started. My tail's too good to drag upon the ground. My tail can't possibly get dirty. Dr. Seuss was sly. I think there's a really intentional reason that he located the tail part. On the backside. Some of you might know the phrase, my shit doesn't stink. <laughs> There's a reason that he located it at the tail, at the ass end of the cat. <laughs> the part of ourselves, symbolically, that maybe we don't want to pay attention to. We think our shit doesn't stink. But the truth is, we all have it. I'm not talking literally now. <laughs> and it's going to stink. Because That's what shit does. So some of you might have seen something similar to this in social media and Facebook, and this is exactly what little Louis Katzenbein asks everyone to do. Own your shit. Own your tail. <laughs> Take responsibility for yourself. Little Louis Katzenbein. Little Nebish, as we would say in Yiddish, little Nebish, little schlemeel. He experiences self-differentiation. He takes responsibility. He sets limits. And not just does he set limits. He knows his values. I mean, little Louis Katzenbein could have spent his entire life going around grumbling. God damn tail, i got to carry this all the time. He could have tried to punch out. He could have tried to take out all the other cats. But instead he simply says, I quit. And his act... Of self-differentiation opens up the space for everyone else's freedom. These words, self-differentiation, might be familiar to some of you. I am most familiar with these words by way of Rabbi Edwin Friedman, who lived about 65, 66 years, died in the 1990s. Rabbi Friedman was a consultant. He worked in congregations. He worked as a therapist. And he was an incredibly bright fellow. He understood the power of self-differentiation in community, not outside of community, because one of the things that Edwin Freeman said over and over again when he was called in to consult in congregations, in organizations, in communities for the government, that was experiencing significant stress and tension, he found one thing over and over and over again. He found people who did not know how to be in relationship with each other while still leaving space for them to have their own experience. He found a lot of anxiety. He found a lot of emotional wires getting tripped, because here's the thing, Ed Freeman was a really, really bright guy, but he also was aware of the fact that we're social creatures, and so he could say things like this, that as human beings we have an irrational faith in the power of reason, An irrational faith in the power of reason that somehow if we're just direct enough and find the exact right words that the person we're in conflict with or the person who's being anxious will hear us and everything will be neat and tidy and everything will be fine. Doesn't work that way very often. And so what Ed Friedman talks about instead is knowing our limits, grounding ourselves in our values, not wanting to make other people change but in being self-differentiated, opening up the space in which we can change and in which they may change. There's a wonderful book by Ed Friedman called Friedman's Fables. He published it just before he died. And this story is in there. It's kind of the classic story of Friedman self-differentiation. It's a story about a family with real problems, a family with real struggle, a family with real anxiety and worry. It's a story of a man and a woman who are married. And the guy is... A complete and utter chaotic alcoholic. And his wife has been living for years as a complete and utter codependent. Covering up for all of his misbehavior and his chaos. I mean, writing fake doctor's notes and calling in for him. He was sick and inventing one excuse after another, after another. And begging and pleading and hoping that if she just says the right words, if she's just Real enough, rational enough, stating her case well enough that somehow finally things will change. But it doesn't. She keeps covering up for his misbehavior. And the chaos and the pain just deepens. Until one day, she has reached her limit. They are sitting there at their kitchen table one morning and she's drinking her coffee. And she is as worn out as worn out can be. And he has another in a series of seemingly limitless hangovers preceded the night before by yet again more chaos and more excuses and no change. She's given up. There's nothing she can do. So she says simply, I know you are going to kill yourself with your drinking. I know that. So this is the only thing I ask. You can do whatever you want. I ask only this, that when you kill yourself because of your drinking, that right now you will double your life insurance policy. So you will leave something behind for me and the kids. That's the moment in which it changes. She's not asking him to change. She's being self-differentiated knowing her values, setting limits. Like little Louie Katzenbein, she simply says, I quit. I cannot, will not lug your drinking around. I will not keep you from falling on the ground. No more anxiety or domineering or controlling. No more wondering about who's up and who's down. It's just not acceptable anymore. See, King Louis, King Louis Cats and the Cats of Katzenstein, that's a story all about status, all about who's got the higher status, who's got the lower status, using other people, in this case, other cats, to be able to make ourselves feel better when someone else puts us down. This is a very old story. This is a story as old as the Bible. This is a story associated with names like uh, Abraham and Sarah. You may know the story of the Bible, the first Israelites, if you will. So, in the bible it's a heavily patriarchal society and sarah if you know the story is not able to conceive and so what does she do she ropes her slave not her servant sometimes it says servant in the bible her slave hagar in and yeah that's what this story is about all of us who are hearing these amazingly brutal horrific stories about sexual slavery and isis that's what this story is about She gives her slave to her husband to conceive a child. That child is named Ishmael. And then, as the story goes, the miracle happens, and Isaac is born to Sarah, and then the status comes about. Well, is Ishmael going to be beloved by his father, and maybe Isaac will be pushed out? So what does she do? She doesn't do the self-differentiated thing. This is a heavily patriarchal society. She has very little power. What does she do? She looks to blame someone else, and she literally sends Hagar and Ishmael the child out into the wilderness to die this is what happens and what can happen when we're not self-differentiated we blame other people for our troubles and others who are innocent can suffer or experience the struggle themselves this happens by way of this simple figure this simple figure here you all know what it is a triangle right Ed Friedman talks about it is through triangulation that we do not engage in our own self-differentiation and look for someone else to blame, to rope someone else into our difficulty, much like I'm about to do right now. And I'm just going to ask your suspension of disbelief, because these two conversations uh, are happening miles apart from each other, even though literally they're happening right here. Julie, how are you? Good. Good to see you today. Yeah, same here. How you been? Good. Yeah? Pretty good. What's new? much well you know what's new with me but i finally saw the most recent hunger games movie and i loved it oh i know how much you love katniss i know how you sty your life after katniss and didn't you think it was incredible wasn't it awesome i know how much you loved it actually no i didn't like it what i thought it dragged it was i was disappointed I don't understand that. How could you not like this movie? You love the books. All I hear from you all the time, always, is how much you love it. How can you not like this? No, I, I, it was it was pretty bad. I give it like a two star two star rating. I was now huh. didn't like it. No. <sighs> okay, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Jill, how, how you I doing? Oh, doing good. Good. All right, good you? to see you today. Yeah. You know what I just did recently? Uh, no. I saw the new Hunger Games movie, and uh, I loved it. Yes, yes. I know how you love Katniss. Yeah, I, I know I how you style your life after uh, well, her. Well, you actually kind of are Katniss, but, um, <laughs> but but I loved it. I'm really good with a bow and arrow. That's true. Isn't it? <laughs> I'm so glad you love it. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, that, that is so cool. I, I knew you and I would <laughs> agree on this. I knew we'd agree. It was, it was the best. It was the best of the year. So, you know who didn't like it? Who wouldn't have? I know exactly. Who wouldn't have? <laughs> Julie didn't like it. Julie that next to me? I know, yeah. Oh. You think you know someone. <laughs> yeah. Oh. This is this is awesome. Yeah. I know you and I are yeah. you, we, we yeah. agree. We always agree. Oh, we she's always agree. Snow. She oh I think so. Yeah. She probably liked him then. I think so. And also, like, last Sunday, did you see the shoes she was wearing? Oh. <laughs> yeah, we did talk about that earlier. We did, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's a little off. Yeah. I'm not sure I trust her anymore. Not, no, no, I think I'm going to have to move a little farther away. Yeah. yeah, I think we might have to kick her out of the band, but let's oh, talk no, about no, that. No, no. <laughs> there, my friends, is triangulation in a very extreme form. I cannot handle the space, the distance between Julie and I disagreeing for some bizarre reason. It's so important to me that she has to like the Hunger Games movie. And instead of actually engaging that conversation with her and being curious about her experience and why she didn't like it, I take all my anxiety, all my difficulty, all my dismay over that, and I seek to form an alliance with Jill. Because then I can feel better about myself, and we together can triangulate Julie out. We can recognize that she's the problem. Julie, it's okay. I like your (laughs) shoes, by the way. (laughs) This is the problem with triangulation. It ends up roping someone else in. Exactly like Sarah and Hagar. Exactly like all the cats in Katzenstein. It reduces freedom and increases conflict. Sometimes when we talk about needing space from someone in relationship, that space because the other person isn't you know, healthy for us or we're not healthy for them. And sometimes when we talk about needing space in relationship, it's absolutely essential to maintain the connection between us. To move beyond triangulation, to be, be, move beyond codependency, beyond bullying, beyond controlling. And in this way, space is absolutely necessary if we are going to have freedom, not from relationship, but freedom with relationship. To recognize, as I was totally doing to Julie, that Julie has her own independent life. That is not a projection of what I want her to be. <laughs> and somehow I was really invested in that. This is a reading we use, I'm going to share with you right now, from Meta.org that we used last Wednesday at our Contemplative Recovery Group, and it's about what's called Insight Dialogue. Insight Dialogue is simply, unless it's not very simple, but easy to explain in this way, it is interpersonal mindfulness, bringing those same qualities of curious, kind attention, openness to emergence, to what we can control, that we practice within ourselves, we practice mindfulness into our relationships with other people. And so it says, in insight dialogue, we let go of predicting what the other person will say. We let go of planning our response. Now let me just pause right here in this reading. How many of us have conversations like that where we're listening to the other person and really what we're doing is we're preparing our rebuttal? We're waiting for just enough space where we can sneak in there and get our point across, thinking if we can make it perfectly, then everything will be fine. The reading continues. We practice insight dialogue without the bias of a goal. While background aspirations of compassion or peace remain, we focus on setting aside our images, judgments, and expectations to remain in the ever-changing now. By trusting ourselves to be present with impermanence, we emerge wiser and more compassionate. This is trusting space. This is opening space. This is moving away from a word that I chose very intentionally, not that I've ever said it in actual, my real conversations. It's moving away from that word always or never. You never put the cap back on the toothpaste. You never clean the microwave you're always mean to me when we go out now the problem with always and never is that all we need to do if we're the person and the crosshairs of that and the target of that all we need to do is come up with one counterexample. <laughs> two weeks ago last tuesday i put the cat back in the toothpaste you're not right you're not the boss of me But the deeper problem with always and never is not that factually it's most often not correct. It's that it's not skillful. None of us can be accountable to always or never. In giving people feedback, especially people who were in conflict with, it's important to bring it back to the specific, to the action and the behavior, and to try to avoid going global on another person's personality. Not to suck up all the space, but to give the other person freedom to respond in conflict. And, you know, opening our hearts to each other, with each other, having to care about other people, people caring about us, means that we're going to know the reality of conflict. I chose this message intentionally on this new member Sunday to basically say this to all these new members. You probably know it already, but let me be really clear. We are all deeply imperfect people here. (laughs) To be in community means that not that we have the absence of conflict, it means rather that we have the call to deal with disagreement in more heartful, more open, more direct ways. That we can recognize all the ways in our relationships and all the challenges and all that kind of spinning out through domineering or controlling or codependency or wanting to get the outcome that we think absolutely we are entitled to. And instead to do something like what's associated with the recovery community, halt. You might know that. I preached on it a few years ago. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, those can be really difficult situations in which to deal with the conflict of another person because we really just want it neat and tidy and to get rid of that difficulty. But instead, to be like little Louis Katzenpine. To know That peacemaking has nothing to do with the absence of conflict. It has to deal with dealing with conflict creatively, with presence, with being here, with being able to own the fact of our anxiety, to, yes, own our shit, (laughs) and to recognize that when that happens, we open up the possibility not just of changing our lives but of changing other people's lives. Self-differentiation is incredibly powerful. It can change not individual lives, but it can change society. There are many stories like this, and perhaps this is the most famous. This one, this picture that some of you might know immediately who that is. That is Rosa Parks, who contrary to the mythology about her, just one day didn't say, "Uh, my feet are tired, I'm not going to move to the back of the bus. No, there was intention. She was trained from within social activist civil rights communities to get to the point where she was willing to bear the cost of an unjust and healthy society and say, no, I am tired, but it's not just about me. It's about setting limits and my values and knowing them and like little Louis Katzenbein saying, I quit. I mean, the transformation that Rosa Parks was a part of, as we know, is still going on in our society right now. It needs and continues to need more self differentiated people who can set limits when we live inside of unjust systems and sick societies and maintain our values and know who we are. Maybe some of us are in the midst of these kinds of situations right now in our lives. Very often, the first thing we can do is take a sacred pause, recognize how anxious. We can feel, we can take a sacred pause, open space, recognize that things are very far from ideal and in that moment know that we have the opportunity and the invitation to do something that the contemplative teacher Richard Rohr said that for me is one of the most important teachings I've ever received. He said that so often when we're in the midst of difficulty what we do is we simply end up transmitting our suffering. Julie did jail through me, who can't handle my own shit. But we don't have to transmit our suffering. He says we can transform our suffering. Today, may we have the capacity to stand wherever we are, whether it's shaky ground, solid ground, Swiss cheese ground. Know who we are. Set our healthy limits. Know our values. And thereby open up the possibility of greater freedom for ourselves and for others who we care about. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of the open way. Of this unfinished creation. Of the possibility of facing our lives with open hearts, even if there's shakiness there. That we recognize in the midst of conflict or difficulty, especially with people who we care about, that we do not need to run so far away we stop seeing who that other person is or stop seeing ourselves. And we don't need to cling so heavily either. May we allow our people to be present, here, now, grounded, open to this ever-evolving creation. Knowing that belovedness and belonging, these promises never disappear, even in the midst of difficulty. Amen.